Well, growing up as a child in the church, I remember singing a song called Father Abraham. Is anybody familiar with that little kid's tune? Yes, yes. Uh, and so I think I, we should sing just a little bit of that really quickly here, okay? Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord right arm. Okay, that's where we'll stop. <laughs> not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, as you can hear and see, there's not a lot of content to that particular song. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons and Father Abraham, but I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then you go to the, all the body movements. So even though I'm quite certain that we sang that song to get our wiggles out before the Sunday school lesson... There is an important truth in those words. Abraham is the father of many people, and you and I and everyone on this planet are part of that family tree. This could be a really great interfaith kids song. It's kind of perfect. See, Abraham is this giant figure of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And that is why these three faiths are called the Abrahamic faiths because each traces their roots back to him. And because each traces their roots back to him, uh, just so we're clear that uh, uh, Islam is the religion and a Muslim is an adherent of the religion of Islam. So for example, my friend Usama is a Muslim in the Ahmadi tradition who is part of the larger religion of Islam. So listen to these words in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, because this gives just a little bit more context. And these are words to Abraham, who was then Abram, but later became Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed because of Abraham. For Jews and Christians, we trace the lineage from Abraham down through his wife Sarah and through their son Isaac. And for Muslims, the line is traced through Abraham's son Ishmael and his mother Hagar. Well, in our text in Genesis, we see that God promises to make a great nation of Ishmael and his descendants. And God blesses Ishmael. God blesses the people through whom the religion of Islam would emerge. And this is a great launching point for our look at the religion of Islam today. Because the whole point of this series is to better understand our neighbors so that we can love our neighbors more fully. So that we might grow in our love and our care for them. And as we do this, we will follow the Swedish theologian, Christer Stendhal, his three rules for religious understanding. Number one, when trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion and not its enemies. Two, don't compare your best to their worst. That's not fair. <laughs> and number three, leave room for holy envy. These rules are especially important as we explore Islam. There are common misconceptions that paint the entire religion in broad and ugly and unfair strokes. We promoted this series quite heavily on social media, and we had overwhelming 
positive responses to this. 99.9% was positive. But we had one person in the community who gave us negative feedback for this series. And it had to do with our willingness to talk about Islam in a civilized and thoughtful manner. Isn't that interesting? This person allowed the actions of radical extremists to cast a shadow over a religion of over one and a half billion people. And because of responses such as those, interreligious dialogue tends to focus heavily on dispelling myths and reframing misconceptions, that, and the conversations rarely move to what's beautiful and what's good and what's true in Islam. Now, of course, there are different differences between Islam and Christianity, and we'll touch on some of those points. But I want to focus on what's constructive for dialogue and relationship, because the desired outcome of this series is that we grow in our understanding and love for our neighbors. Now, we won't be able to cover all the depths of Islam's history, theology, and contributions to humanity. There are many. We will only scratch the surface. Plus, Islam is not monolithic. We won't be able to cover every fact or every, or every facet, every sect uh, of this hugely vast religion that is all over the world. Plus, there are many geopolitical issues that are at play, especially in the Middle East, which complicates how to define Islam. I won't spend time explaining the finer points of theological difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims, except that it all comes down to an ancient dispute about who the rightful successors to the Prophet Muhammad were, who has the authority to lead, who has the correct understanding of the religious law and theology, and how it should be practiced in everyday life. Believers within both major branches of Islam can be found on a spectrum from secular to fundamentalist, just like you can find within Christianity. Now, Sunni Muslims represent 85 to 90 percent of all Muslims in the world, while Shia Muslims represent somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. This graph is a little bit old, dated to 2009, so these numbers have expanded a little bit. So here's a common misconception is that uh, only 20% of the, of the world's Muslim population lives in the Middle East, yet it has the highest concentration of Muslim-majority nations. South Asia has the largest Muslim populations in the world, with Indonesia at the top at 229 million, and India not far behind at 189 million. And like I said, those numbers don't match what you see on the screen. This one's slightly dated. So in Indonesia, Muslims are the majority, but in India, the second greatest population of Muslims in the world in one country, they are the minority. And they are a particularly persecuted minority uh, because of the rise of Hindu nationalism under India's president, Modi. And religious nationalism in all its forms can be particularly dangerous for any religious minority, including here in our own country. So in Islam, there are five great prophets or messengers of God, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. As one of the great messengers, uh, Muslims believe that Jesus was sent to his people to deliver a timely message. They believe in his virgin birth, in the miracles that he performed, 
And they believe that Jesus will return on the day of judgment to defeat the Antichrist and establish peace. Sounds familiar, right? Well, some believe that this will literally happen, while others receive it in a more metaphorical sense. Either way, Muslims love Jesus. <laughs> they can even wear the t-shirt. <laughs> and, and there's there is a difference in the way that Christians and Muslims view Jesus though. In Christianity, Jesus is the son of God, the embodiment, the incarnation of God. In Islam, Jesus is not divine. In Islam, Muhammad is the final and greatest prophet, though not divine, and the revelation he received from God is the most important one. According to Muslims, the message Muhammad delivered brought needed correction, a return to pure monotheism. See, the word Islam has its root in the Arabic word for peace, which is salam, and its meaning is literally submission. The traditional idea is that submission to God will bring one peace, and that is the core of Islam. The holy book of Islam is the Quran, which literally means recitation. It is believed that the prophet Muhammad received oral revelation from the archangel, the archangel Gabriel, as a recitation from Allah, the Arabic word for God. And it's believed that Muhammad was illiterate himself, so his followers wrote down these recitations in Arabic and passed them on from one generation to another. There are 114 surahs, or chapters, in the Quran, and you'll see it's spelled the Q way, Q-U-R-A-N, in religious and academic settings. And in literary settings, you'll see it's spelled with the K, K-O-R-A-N. A little fun fact. <laughs> Second in importance only to the Quran are the hadiths. And these are the recorded sayings of uh, of Muhammad and Muhammad's followers recorded his teachings and sayings which have been passed down through generations to guide Muslims in the practical application of the Quran, much like Midrash in the Jewish tradition. And there's disagreement between Sunni and Shia and the different sects and traditions of Islam about how many Hadith actually exist. Some say 2,000, some say 1,400, others say way less. It all depends. But all traditions rely upon and receive some portion of these hadiths as holy guides in their faith. Now, the core practices of Islam are defined in what's called the five pillars. The first pillar is this, the profession of faith, uh, otherwise known as the shahada in Arabic. And the belief is that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. That is the statement. This is central to Islam. And one becomes a Muslim by reciting this phrase with conviction. The second pillar is Salat, uh, which is prayer. Muslims pray facing Mecca five times a day at dawn, at noon, mid-afternoon, at sunset, and after dark. And prayer includes a recitation of the opening chapter or surah of the Quran and is sometimes performed on a, a small rug or a mat that is used expressly for that purpose. Muslims can pray individually in any location or together in a mosque where an imam, a leader in prayer, guides the congregation. 
And men gather uh, Friday, noondays uh, for prayer, and women are welcome, but they're not obliged to participate. And after that prayer, a sermon is, is, is brought uh, by the imam on a passage from the Quran, and it's followed by prayers from the imam, and then a discussion on some particular religious topic. This is one of the things that I admire most about Muslims, the faithful devotion to God in prayer. Like any spiritual practice, there is the danger of this expression becoming just an obligation, a habit without meaning. Jalal Adin Muhammad Rumi has been called the greatest Persian poet in history. He was an Islamic scholar and philosopher of the 13th century, and he's known simply as Rumi. How many of you have heard of Rumi? Yeah, he's very famous. His expressive and emotional language about his devotion to God has affected and impacted countless Muslims around the world since the 13th century. And Rumi's work and devotion contributed heavily to the movement called Sufism, which includes Muslims of all sectarian backgrounds and traditions to pursue God in more personal ways. Take a look at this really beautiful excerpt of Rumi's poetry with me. It says, On the seeker's path, wise men and fools are one. In his love, brothers and strangers are one. Go on, drink the wine of the beloved. In that faith, Muslims and pagans are one. For Rumi, the presence of God is the greatest intoxicant and the only one that will truly fulfill the cravings of the human soul. There's an interesting parallel to this concept in the New Testament, in uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians church, in Ephesians chapter 5, 18 and 19. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. See, being filled with the love of the divine or with the Spirit of God leads to true fulfillment and pleasure over and above any pleasure we can derive from earthly things. Rumi's words inspire all spiritual seekers. The third pillar of Islam is alms or zakat. In accordance with uh, the Islamic law, Muslims donate a fixed portion of their income for those who are in need within their community. And there are those who give very heavily uh, and generously to build mosques and drinking fountains and hospitals and schools and institutions uh, that promote Islam. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. How many of you have seen the Geico commercials with the gecko, right? You seen those commercials? Yeah. And do you remember the tagline of these ads? It says, I save 15% on car insurance by switching to Geico, right? This is going somewhere. <laughs> Probably to a bad dad joke. One of my friends, Usama, in seminary uh, is a Muslim, as I mentioned earlier, and we were just talking about everything. And I said, Usama, a great selling point for being a Muslim is that the giving requirements are much lower than for Christians. I said, how much is expected that you give within your particular community? And he said, 3%. I said, man, it's 10% over here with us Christians. That's a great selling point. I switched to Islam and saved 7% on my giving. <laughs> That's a, that's a really bad joke, and I really wondered if I should say it, but I just went with it. If you really think I shouldn't say it, come and talk to me after the service, and I won't say it in the second one. <laughs> All right. So 
the, the common amount, the common fixed amount is 3% in Islam and, and 10% in Christianity. Uh, and that's not a legalistic number, but there it is. And the purpose of the giving uh, in both Islam and Christianity is really dual purposed. The one giving offers back to God what has been freely given as an act of worship. And in that gift, the giver recognizes that the gift can help another one of God's image bearers, another one of God's beautiful creatures. And this is where the three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam are all united. We demonstrate our love for God by caring for one another. Well, the fourth pillar of Islam is fasting, uh, called Psalm, which is highlighted during the month of Ramadan, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. A few weeks ago, Pastor Tracy did a video interview with Sadia Termizi and asked her questions about her Muslim faith. Why should we ask Muslims about their faith when attempting to understand their religion? Well, a religion doesn't exist without its adherence. And we come to know a religion by the practices of its people, right? The best spokespeople for a religion is, is not an ideology or a doctrine. It's the people who practice that religion. So this interview with Sadia highlights the importance of these conversations that we have. And I absolutely loved what Sadia had to say about her experiences with fasting during Ramadan. So let's get to know Sadia briefly and take a look at this video. Hi, I'm Sadia Termizi. I am Muslim and was born in Pakistan, but raised in Houston. I have been active in the interfaith movement probably all of my life, but particularly in Austin through IACT or the Interfaith Action of Central Texas. And I truly believe that through interfaith dialogue and getting to know one another, we become more compassionate and more empathetic and dispel many of the myths and stereotypes we hold of the other and uh, hopefully counter the fear of the other. People might not get this right off the bat, but my personal favorite holiday in Islam is Ramadan, which is um, 30 days of observing fasting from um, food and drink uh, luxuries from dawn to dusk. And it is definitely one of the hardest things I do every year. Uh, but it's a it's a, an annual kind of refresher um, and reminder of the self-discipline that I didn't know I had <laughs> when you um, get through. And, and, you know, it's if you're physically able to partake, probably the most memorable day of fasting. It's, it's a moment that I always remember when I speak about Ramadan. Um, and because I've worked in nonprofits, working with a lot of um, youth who are at risk or families that just have uh, very basic means, that I was going through a particularly challenging day of fasting. Um, I think I overslept and missed my morning meal and just was going through the motions and I had a deadline due that day and my focus just wasn't quite there. And that evening when I sat at the dinner table and we um, ordered out and had a bunch of different things that we were craving, I realized that um, that really the act of fasting from food and drink 
as hard as it is for me, it's just a temporary experience. Um, and that for many people, that's their day in, day out struggle. And particularly with kids in school, um, who are often labeled as misbehaving or dumb. And that really does you not want to do things. Um, and so it was, a. I guess an epiphany for me was like, whoa, this is what people do every day. And I am humbled to be able to walk a mile in that, in those shoes. I love that. I love what, what Sadia says here. And thanks to Jonathan for editing and putting that beautiful video together. Well, in our Christian tradition, as I mentioned earlier in the announcements, the season of Lent is almost upon us, and many Christians associate um, this season of Lent with fasting in order to focus on our need for God. And during this six-week period, we, we turn away from the things that harm us in order to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. And as we celebrate this resurrection, we recognize that it's a down payment on our future resurrection to a new life with Christ forever. And we kick off this season of Lent this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, right here in this room at 7 p.m. And we'll have a worship service here that will help us focus on our mortality and that seasons of difficulty or suffering oftentimes precede seasons of joy and new life and resurrection. Well, Islam and Christianity, they both place significant emphasis on sacrifice and submission. Let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Well, the fifth pillar of Islam is pilgrimage or hajj. Every Muslim whose health and finances permit it must make at least one visit to the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. The Kaaba, a cubicle structure covered in black embroidered hangings, is at the center of the Haram Mosque in Mecca. And Muslims believe that this is the house that Abraham built, or Ibrahim in in Arabic, which is built for God. And they face this direction when they pray, towards Mecca, towards the Kaaba. And since the time of the Prophet Muhammad, believers from all over the world have gathered around this Kaaba in Mecca on the 8th and the 12th days of the final month of the Islamic calendar. See, the practice of pilgrimage is fascinating to me. I see the beauty of connecting to a sacred place that has meant so much to so many. As you think about your own faith as Christians, what are some of those sites that you might like to visit? if it was possible to connect with your faith tradition. You know, Pastor Tracy will be bringing some folks here from Westlake UMC on a Holy Land tour to Israel this October. Do you want to go on a spiritual pilgrimage? Listen, it's no secret that Muslims and Christians have had major tensions with one another over long histories. Some of it has been downright brutal, and bloody. And there's blood on everyone's hands. There are no innocent parties in these tensions. But there is so much common ground between Islam and Christianity. There is a path that faithful Muslims and Christians alike can follow in their convictions, to to faithfully follow their convictions and grow in their understanding of one another. 138 Muslim intellectuals from every region of the world came together to draft something called a common word 
in 2007. And this has become a major movement forward for the interfaith dialogue between Christians and Muslims around the world. The emphasis is on our highest shared values, our highest shared ideals, to love God completely and the Bible clearly express that these commands to love God and neighbor must guide us all. I pray that love will guide us. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And I pray that we can sing this song together. Amen.